welcome to The Animated Journey, a podcast featuring interviews with animation professionals working in television, film, and games. I'm your host, Angela Ensminger. And I'm Jeff Schutze. Nice to see you again, Jeff. Nice to see you, Angela. So what's been going on in your world? Let's see. I got a new job that starts tomorrow. What is your new job? (laughs) I don't know if I can say just yet, but it has to do with sports. (laughs) (laughs) Has to do with basketball. There's animation in it, and it is not Space Jam. (laughs) Because I keep joking with you that, oh, it's Space Jam. And you're like, no, but it's really Space Jam. No, no, it's not. No, it's much smaller. It's on a much smaller scale, but it should be fun. And hopefully I can talk about it, you know, as it gets closer to coming out. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Non-Space Jam project. Totally. (laughs) But it's been fun. I've been doing, you know, a lot of gesture drawing and stuff, watching a lot of basketball, which I am not, <laughs> I'm not that big a sports There's guy. There's the big thing. Yeah. How is that experience? It's cool. I mean, aspiring artists and animators and all that storyboard artists should be watching sports for a lot of gesture drawing because, you know, as I'm drawing these basketball players, I'm like, you know, that'd be a cool Spider-Man pose, or this is a cool hero pose. You know, you can Mm -hmm. just get so much out of, just as you can drawing regular, normal, everyday people when you're at the coffee shop, just drawing as much different kinds of things too. Just going on TV and drawing, even just drawing it for camera angles and lighting and all that stuff. Drawing sports and stuff has really just kind of giving me a whole different way of looking at things. So, yeah, it's been great. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and now I know a little bit more about basketball, which, yeah, I did not expect to be checking out right now. Now you will become a championship free throw person. Mm, Well, I just totally proved that I don't know anything about it either. It's it's like free throw person. That's the proper term, right? (laughs) Throw that ball over the goalposts. It's all gosh. So... (laughs) So sad. Anyway. But what have you been up to, Angela? Yeah, I've been working on a lot of cool projects, of which I'll be able to talk about them a little more in the next episode, but also really excited to announce that Volume 8 of the Loud House graphic novel came out, so it's published by Paper Cuts in conjunction with Nickelodeon, so a bunch of us on the Loud House team, as well as freelancers on other Nickelodeon teams and freelancers outside the studio who are super rad and awesome that you guys should check out. All of us contributed, so I had an opportunity to write two stories that I was very happy about. So you guys can check that out. It's going to be on Amazon and also the Paper Cuts website, and I believe Barnes & Noble and like Target.com. Any place where you can get graphic novels or books, you'll be able to find this. So make sure to check that out. That's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's really neat being able to, you know, I grew up reading comics and mm-hmm. watching cartoons, and now... I work on comics and cartoons, so it's all come full circle, so it's pretty interesting. Yeah, and you did some artwork for a previous graphic novel, Mm -hmm. Loud House, but this one you're writing, how did that, what's the difference between those two? Uh, Oh, not a really big difference. I've actually been writing since volume four, Mm -hmm. so I worked on volumes four through eight, and so really it was just a, the determining factor was time. So for volume eight, because I was working on other projects and I had a ton of classes over the summer, Mm. I didn't have time to draw. And for me, writing is a lot faster than drawing. So what I did was I just wrote a lot. Mm. And Mm -hmm. then 
submitted it to the publisher and then they found people to draw and actually one of the artists on one of the comics is Wayman who we nice. had earlier so that was really cool and the other artist is uh, Ivy Jordan who's now over at Warner Brothers Very so cool. yeah so it was really cool getting to see their work bring the words to life but yeah it's at least for paper cuts it's basically just you submit what your ideas are and mm-hmm. then because I have a background in writing they mm-hmm. already do that I could write. Right. So it was just a matter of would you like to write and draw or mm-hmm. would you like to do just one or the other? And then I imagine this is similar for other comic book companies once you have an established relationship mm-hmm. or you're working on a show, but you submit your ideas. And then based on it's a little bit different for us because since we also have a show, it has to go through legal and they have to make sure that we don't have an episode that's coming up with oh. that same idea. Mm-hmm. So it has to be different from the show, but it also has to fit in with the tone of the book. So previous volumes, they had adventures were just in the house or the adventures were just in the van or the adventures were going to be here or they're going to be with the Casa Grandes. And so they would pick stories based on what the theme of the book is going to be. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that your publisher will work with you on too, is they'll ask you, hey, for this volume, this is the theme we're going for. Can you come up with some ideas that fit in with that theme? And mm-hmm. so you come up with some ideas, you pitch back and forth, and then the ones that they like are the ones that you write or draw. And what scratched that creative itch more? Did you like drawing or writing more? Or both. I think that I like drawing is number one. Writing is definitely a very close number two for mm-hmm. me. And I tend to write and draw my own stuff all the time. I'm writing and drawing my own comic. I write and draw my own pilots and boards for personal projects. So for me, they, they work really well together. And it's actually something that I've been doing since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And then previous career that's what I did was writing and editing. So it's not, it's not a foreign concept. Right. No, that's Mm -hmm. super cool. Yeah. And then speaking of comics, we're really happy to have our guest on today because this was definitely a treat. We had an opportunity to sit down with Aliki Theophilopoulos and we were very excited to sit with her. She is one of the co-showrunners of Harvey Girls Forever which is a DreamWorks television show, which is streaming right now on Netflix. They recently dropped season three, and we were very excited to talk to her. As some of you out there may know, Harvey Girls Forever is based off of the Harvey comics, which are creators of Casper and Wendy and Baby Huey and Richie Rich and also Audrey, Lada, and Dot, who are the three stars of Harvey Girls Forever. So I just want to give a shout out to Brendan Hay, who's the other showrunner, who also helped us put this interview together, as well as the wonderful PR team over at DreamWorks, which allowed us to come over to the studio and meet with Aliki. You guys are going to love hearing from her. She is a Disney veteran. She worked on all of your favorite Disney animated features, and she's also directed quite a few of her own shorts, and she's done voice acting, she's done writing, she writes songs. She does everything. Yeah, she's Emmy-nominated, I think, right? For Mm -hmm. writing a song for... It's Phineas and Ferb. Phineas and Ferb. Yeah, yeah, that's so awesome. I mean, she had so many cool stories, and yeah, she's been in the industry so long that it was just great being able to talk with her. And plus, being on the DreamWorks campus was fun, and it was just a cool little afternoon we had. Yeah. 
So without further ado, we are very happy to present episode 99, Interview with Aliki Theophilopoulos. Hello, everyone. So we are here today at DreamWorks interviewing the supervising producer and co-showrunner of Harvey Girls, Aliki Theophilopoulos. Aliki, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're so welcome. I'm really excited to talk to you guys. We're very excited to talk to you as well. We've been following uh, your career and uh, Brendan's career for quite a while now. Y'all have done some amazing things in the world of animation. So we always like to start briefly with where people are coming from before we talk about the main event. So had an opportunity to watch your TED Talk and hear about <laughs> your travels through the world of Southern California and animation. You've worked as a 2D animator on Disney features we love, like Tarzan and Hercules and Atlantis. You were director for Descendants, Wicked World, which is amazing. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about your journey into the field of animation? Sure. So I was just a super, super animation fan. I grew up watching tons of cartoons. I was obsessed with cartoons. I loved all the classic cartoons that we know, like Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry and just, you know, all those old shows. But I also loved the new ones, too. I just loved anything animated. But I particularly love the humor and just kind of the wit behind the Looney Tunes cartoons. On top of that, I had such an appreciation for the Disney films. It was less about the humor for me with Disney films and more about the storytelling and the heart. I really loved how I would watch something and it made me feel something that I could feel like I was pulled into the world of Peter Pan and I wanted to imagine myself there or when I was watching Dumbo and his mom is, you know, cradling him when when she can't completely reach her son, she holds him in her trunk and they play a beautiful lullaby. It made me want to cry and I felt like, God, you know, I want to I want to do that to people too. I want to draw characters and create stories that make people feel something or I want to draw things that are so funny it makes people laugh so I was just pulled into that world at an early age so eventually I went to art school I went to USC once I graduated uh, at the time when I went there was not an animation program there was just an animation class so I found I needed some more training I took a bunch of classes at the animation guild which had really great classes still does and about a year and a half after graduating, I ended up getting into a feature animation training program. It was a three-month program that eventually led to being hired onto my first film, which was Hercules. That's awesome. And so, you know, once you're at Disney, once you're working at feature films, how did you then transition to becoming a storyboard artist for television and then a director later on? Well, it's really interesting because you know, working at Disney and working at Disney Features in particular was pretty much as far as my dream got. To me, I just wanted to bring these characters to life. I wanted to be at Disney. I love Disney. And so I just saw myself climbing the ranks, hopefully, to eventually become a supervising animator, not really beyond that. So what happened for me is Disney made the announcement one day after Ice Age debuted and after they felt that their 2D films hadn't had the success they were looking for, whereas in their eyes at the time, it was, it was CG films that were going to be making more money. They decided to 
basically get rid of the department. So they made this announcement. It was devastating for many. I feel like, you know, while people were crying in the halls, I ran to the phone and called up an animation school and enrolled in classes right away because I knew I needed to kind of reinvent myself in order to stay in this industry. I did take the CG classes that they offered uh, at the studio at the time. And although I love animation, what I found is that it's not as much the animating part, which in CG, you know, you, you don't draw anymore. For me, I wanted to still be able to draw. So in taking classes, what I discovered about myself was that I loved storyboarding. I loved the storytelling aspect of animation the best. So it wasn't just performances, it was more of the big picture. So I decided that I wanted to move more into that direction and I was lucky enough to land a job at Nickelodeon as a storyboard revisionist on a show called Chalk Zone. From there, to make a long story longer, I guess. <laughs> it's so hard to skip the details. There's so much. Um, so basically from there, I ended up doing two shorts for Frederator. This journey involved finding out that I also wanted to create my own shows, create my own characters, not just bring other people's ideas to life. So I ended up coming up with two shorts that I did for Frederator, which aired on Nickelodeon. Those shorts uh, were seen by Dan Pavemeyer, one of the creators of Phineas and Ferb. So he hired me onto Phineas and Ferb, which is where I became not just a storyboard artist, but also a writer. And then um, from there, started doing more development, developing at uh, Disney, projects that didn't end up going to series at that time, but they brought enough recognition to my being able to develop something. And so I was given the opportunity to not only direct Descendants, but be a co-executive producer. So having gone from being a board artist and being a writer to then being co-executive on Descendants, what were some of the skills that you had to learn so that you could make that jump successfully? Mm. Well, I think there's a couple things. One is, practically speaking, boarding on a show like Phineas and Ferb where we weren't just following a script. It's what we call a board-driven show. So we were given an outline, but then we had to write our own dialogue, let alone storyboard it. So in a way, we had an opportunity to be kind of a mini director of our own projects. So mm -hmm. I think whether it's on a show like that or you're doing it for yourself, you're you know writing and boarding your own ideas and your own shorts, that helps give you some skills to be able to go beyond kind of what you're handed. Mm -hmm. From there, I think also pitching and developing really helped me because although at that time my projects that were in development did not move forward, I learned a lot about development. I learned how to work with development executives. I learned how to take notes. I learned how to take characters that were the beginnings of an idea and bring them out into fruition. Mm -hmm. And so I learned some of the um, more conceptual uh, ways of bringing a project to life uh, on top of the more practical, technical parts of it. And I think that, you know, with Descendants, I began as a director. And I had, at this, right before that, I directed Dr. Lollipop for Frederator. Mm -hmm. So I started off where I was just directing, but as my skills grew, not only, again, technically speaking, but kind of like the people part of it, the working with the executive team, the looking at the big picture, the focus on a bigger vision, I think that's where the studio recognized that I could make that move into being a co-executive producer as well. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. How did you get those doors to open 
because it seems like you've worked with a lot of studios. You're working at Disney, Frederator, Nickelodeon, now you're at DreamWorks. I know a lot of our listeners just find it hard to open those doors to, and you're wearing a lot of hats. Too, so. <laughs> I think you have to be a little bit of a big mouth, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to be an advocate for yourself. So one time, you know, even on Harvey, there was this PA that she's really awesome, really organized, really sweet, really supportive. At the end of the production, she told me that she wanted to get into storyboarding and I had no idea. And I said to her, like this whole time, you could have been doing tests and I would have worked with you. You could have brought your tests to me. And, you know, now I know, but I didn't know this whole time. And so you know, I was like, I felt like it was long overdue for me. I wanted to direct way before I actually got to direct. So I just kept talking about it. I want to direct. I want to direct. I want to direct. I told everybody. And I also, I just made this decision that, I don't know how to say this, but that I was going to be a leader. And so I asked myself, what does a leader look like? A leader takes initiative. A leader supports the team, a leader speaks up, a leader sits at the table, a leader isn't afraid to approach executives and have constructive dialogue with them, a leader isn't afraid of criticism and feedback. I just kind of started looking for ways to just be a leader before I was one. And I think that actually made a huge difference so that when the time came, I think that people felt like, yeah, she could do this. That's excellent advice and really good for anybody to know that it's not like if you do your work well, that's one thing, but you have to let people know. It's not a thing of just, I'm just going to sit here and do it well and hope that they pay attention. No, no, it just doesn't happen Mm -hmm. like that. There's a lot, there are a lot of talented people in our industry. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of people who quote unquote deserve to be there, but they either don't want to be, or they haven't told anybody that they want to be, or they've developed those technical skills this is a problem i see a lot the technical skills are developed but then when it comes down to communicating with the team or being able to take feedback from executives and communicate with them you know there's this whole other part of it or or you know to find solutions when problems come up in the production that's like a whole other part of it that doesn't just rely on your technical skill mm-hmm. that is very true so then moving from working at Disney to then working at DreamWorks, what was the process of you coming on and working on Harvey Girls? Um, That was kind of interesting because, you know, I came back to Disney after I had left during the feature time, went to Nickelodeon, had a great time there. I came back to Disney for Phineas and Ferb, then Descendants, and had really developed incredible relationships with my colleagues at Disney and felt really happy and comfortable there. But my... The season had come to an end on Descendants, and a project that I had with development with them also came to an end. And my manager really encouraged me. I was looking at the possibility of doing the next season of Descendants, um, but my manager had just said, you know what, you've been here for a while, and you know you might want to just be open to some meetings. And again, neither of us were really looking for me to make a move. It was just like, reach out, connect with some new people, just have some conversations and see what's going on out there. So I had a lot of really amazing, interesting meetings and uh, reconnections with people I'd worked with in the past and really got to see how in a way, I think my nose had just been to the grind and I hadn't really noticed what I had done and what I had accomplished in my career, but everybody else had. So all of a sudden, I was looking at these people that were like, do you want to develop a movie with us and possibly direct it? And then another, 
you know, we're starting this division and do you want to, you know, maybe be a development executive and help us start this division and da 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 And then, so these really amazing opportunities. And it was actually hard for me because I do love Disney. So with DreamWorks, the meeting that I had here, it was with a few executives that presented a few projects to me. And when Beth Cannon presented Harvey to me, I just fell in love. I fell in love with what it could be. It had a lot of elements of something that I really wanted to do in my time in our industry, and that is create a show that has three, you know, it had three girl characters at its center, but it wasn't that any of the girl characters were the girl one. They were distinctly different characters, unique into themselves, and that's just something I've always wanted to do as create a cartoony cartoon with girl characters. So there was a, a writer, Emily Brundage, who was involved and had developed a take that I really fell in love with. And again, I still was kind of like, I don't know if I really would leave Disney and go do this. But I really was pulled into this project and and kind of just saw what was happening at DreamWorks, this exciting time where everything was just kind of exploding with with the Netflix deal and the projects that were coming in here and the people that were so passionate. A lot of female leaders at DreamWorks, female decision makers that I found to be really inspiring. So I decided to just take that leap of faith and come join the team. And it's been incredible. That's really exciting. And it's, it's great to hear too that they recognized your talent and what you were doing and that there was a project that fit in because having seen, you know, some of your other shorts and some of your other work, like you really have championed like kids and girls and, you know, different people being involved. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so wanted to find out too. So Harvey Girls, you know, some of our listeners may notice, but some of our younger listeners may not. So Harvey Girls are part of Harvey Comics. Mm-hmm. So this is an established comic it's been around since the 40s, so if y'all are familiar with Casper or Wendy or Baby Huey and whatnot, it's in the same realm as that. Mm-hmm. So what were some of the exciting things and what were some of the challenges of taking comic characters that already existed and now putting them in this brand new world and brand new show? It's a good question. I mean, a place that I found inspiration was the Disney Mickey shorts. I was so lucky I got to do a Minnie Mouse short that was a part of that. And what I noticed was the team had taken Mickey Mouse and found a way to have an element of the throwback. So it was, you know, it was cartoony and fun and just felt cartoon driven, but there was still an update in its sensibility and timing and scenarios. So I thought about that a lot with Harvey. Um, Like I said, Emily Brundage had a great take um, that she started with the show and then it was with taking it further into moving into our animated production. It was just really finding that balance between let's make sure we have a nod to the past where this is 2D animation, it's squash and stretchy, we have these recognizable characters, we have elements of their personality that we're keeping the same, but then let's update it where there are themes that are apropos for today's world. We made the decision to, you know, Dot is, is an African-American character. Lotta, although she is, you know, this wonderfully voluptuous character, she's not, her personality isn't eating, which it was in the past. It was just that she eats a lot. So now it's not that she eats a lot. She just has like a zest and a passion for life. So 
we made these adjustments that, you know, we didn't completely throw away who they were, but we recognized that there needed to be some updates, and so we went for it. And when I say we, that means uh, uh, my my partner in crime, Brendan Hay. Yeah, very cool. And one of the other things that I love about the show is I feel like I'm watching actual children. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I'm watching, like, adults in children's suits. Mm -hmm. And so how are y'all able to infuse, like, you know, this feels like the street that I grew up Mm. on. These kids are doing some of the stuff that we used to do Mm. as kids. So how were y'all able to bring that element into it? Well, we used to say that this show is what childhood feels like, what childhood felt like. So the skies are pink because that feels like childhood. And, you know, the show kind of takes place at that special time, like after school, before bedtime, because that's like childhood right there, that time with your friends out on the street or the cul-de-sac when you're just get, you just get to be free and be a kid. So we thought about that a lot. And then um, in the writer's room, there, there was a lot of talk about, you know, like writers, their own childhood. So they brought in their own stories into play and really drew upon their own experiences as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. And then I noticed, too, because I've been watching it since, like, season one, that it was originally, like, Harvey Street Kids mm-hmm. and then became Harvey Girls. Mm-hmm. And I heard that, like, originally, y'all had kind of wanted to be Harvey Girls. So how were mm-hmm. you able to bring back the original title that y'all had first thought of? That's a really interesting part of the show's story. Basically, it was originally Harvey Girls. Mm-hmm. And when the studio had done some testing and had, you know, audience take audiences take a look, what was found was that boys and girls loved the show equally. And the hope was to have a title that brought everybody in. And it was so much about the street, the street, the street, you know. Harvey Street's the best place to be, the best place to be a kid. It takes place on the street. We have all these other ensemble characters that we wanted to focus on. So as we started thinking about this bigger picture of inclusion in that sense, Mm -hmm. the title was changed. But then as we, you know, went through season one, it was like, wow, you know, at the end of the day, this really is about the girls. This really is about, like, focusing on the girls. So no matter who these other characters are that come in and and bringing in, you know, now Richie Rich and such... Mm -hmm. It still is about the girls. It's still about Harvey girls forever. It's still the girls being best friends forever. So that was the fun decision, uh, the the fun reason for why we made that decision. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah, that's great. I was just wondering about, you mentioned that the writers bring in their own stories, you're mm-hmm. bringing in your own stories from your childhood. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about the process, are the board artists in on some of the table reads? Do they, you know, inject some of their own stories? 100%, yeah. So we had a table read with every single episode, and the board artist and director was invited to that. So we, you know, we really wanted the team to build on each other's ideas. So it wasn't about, like, you know, the writer wrote this thing, and now it's gold, and it can't be changed. Like, we really worked together. Like, board artists would run into the writer's room. The writers would run over to the board artists and talk. So uh, everybody was constantly building on each other's ideas. So even when a board artist got a script, if they felt like they wanted to plus something or change something, they could go talk to the writer about it, or they could jump in and board it in a way that they saw it. And we were really open to that. That sounds... 
just dreaming. Yeah. Not every, you know, we've no. had a chance to talk to a lot of people. Mm. Not every show is yeah, like that. No, some it's shows not. Like very clear. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Not on our show. Yeah. That's excellent. That's really cool. And then speaking of your team, too, since you've had an opportunity to work on a number of very interesting mm -hmm. teams, how do you go about assembling a good team of mm. people that you feel like are going to gel together and make a really good show? <laughs> Brendan and I had a, I had a no, um, I guess we can't cuss on this word, a no <laughs> blank blanks policy. <laughs> very mean people said in a, in, a, in a vulgar way, I guess I should say, but... Um, <laughs> So we just, we really thought about, you know, not only bringing on people that had a lot of talent, like I said, there are a lot of talented people in our industry, but we wanted to make sure that um, it was a certain kind of person that would work on a show because this show was all about that kind of sweetness and heart at the end of the day, you know, even, even no matter what's happening, if, if Audrey's being aggro or Melvin's being a punk, you know, that at the end of the day, there is a sweetness there. And we really felt like we wanted our team to bring that from every aspect, from every angle, mm -hmm. whether it was design or production. So, you know, you can't really tell 100%, but we really did look at not only the people's work that we were meeting with, but who they were in the meeting. We asked a lot of questions. We looked at their social media. I mean, we really tried to get a sense. And I, and I do tell people, like, pay attention to how you're representing yourself on social media mm -hmm. because it does matter. And so we really wanted to get a sense of who people were. And I have to say, for the most part, we just had this team of really, like, kind and caring people, let alone super passionate and talented. So... Yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. And then I, I really brought a lot of what I learned from Phineas and Ferb. Dan and Swampy were amazing leaders. They made us really feel like we were a part of the whole process. They always had like a Monday morning meeting where we would all connect and not only talk about the show, but talk about movies or if somebody had an art show or whatever. Mm -hmm. So Brendan and I also did that on Harvey where we met every Monday morning. So, yeah. That's excellent. And I saw, too, that not only are y'all showrunners, not only are you guys writers, but you're also songwriters as well. And I know that you've you know, written different songs uh -huh. for different shows. So how did you develop all of those different types of skills? <sighs> it's funny. I get asked that a lot, and I don't even know how to answer it really. I think it's just like I was just a goofball as a kid. So I was always doing voices like with my brothers, and we were just a really funny, goofy family. So it was just like growing up that way. So that's where I got my, you know, doing voices and my humor, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then with music, like I played piano as a kid, but I didn't really keep up with it. But I was really musical. And I was always along with doing voices, I was always making up songs. Mm -hmm. So when I got to Phineas and Ferb, my first episode that aired was the iRobot episode and we needed a song, Finajoids and Furbots. And again, I've always just been a goofball making mm -hmm. up silly songs and silly rhymes and voices and da da da. Mm -hmm. And I just Dan was really open to letting us try things if we wanted to. So I was like, Can I try writing the song? And so he said, Sure. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time I wrote a song professionally, I guess, if you could call it that. <laughs> and then, you know, from there, I was nominated for an Emmy for one of my songs on, on Phineas and Ferb that I co-wrote. And so then it just gave me more, I guess, confidence that it was something that I could do. Mm -hmm. So then on my own development projects and then on Harvey, it was just something where if I had the time, which often 
that's not the case, I would just try to jump in and do something. And, and I have to say, like, from what we do, our kind of scratch versions, we have amazingly talented, real songwriters and composers <laughs> that take our stuff and make it sound amazing. So there is that. Yes, <laughs> whole team effort. Yes, yes. So in getting back to Harvey and the team and whatnot, so season three, you introduced Richie Rich, mm-hmm. which is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about that, how y'all went about deciding how to make him because you know nowadays it's sometimes there's a little bit of weirdness and dichotomy it's like oh the uber rich but i feel like you guys did a really good job and he's a genuinely like fun character and kind character that the kids want to be around yeah so what was that discussion of like bringing him in there was a lot of discussion about it for that exact reason because we were like in our climate right now he really could have come off as like a very unlikable character so we had a lot of like brainstorms a lot of you know just talking about who that character could be like what place would he come from and what we realized was that we needed to make sure and keep a kind of earnestness about him and the way we did that was thinking of him as this kid who had never had a childhood. So even though he had struck it rich, in our version it was by with his technology, he had missed out on childhood completely. So he is kind of aloof. Like he doesn't know that there's like not an obnoxiousness to him when he talks about the money he has or the things that he's done or like I think he talks about like watching movies on his contact lenses like <laughs> like he doesn't even know that you don't do that and he doesn't mean to be mean about it at all and he's just not so we've kept the sweetness to him by just having it that he hasn't had a childhood so Lada, Audrey and Dot who are the queens of childhood they have this thing that they can give him mm-hmm. so even though he has all this money there's something he hasn't had, and that's something that the girls are the best at. So what money does for them on the street, Richie's you know, resources, is it affords them the opportunity to maybe do some other things that they hadn't been able to do before, but it's still always led by Lada, Dada, and Audrey. So it was that, and then I have to say Jack Quaid, he has such a sweetness and earnestness to his voice that I think that aside from how we've written and developed our Richie Rich, Jack has brought this, like, earnestness and sweetness just by who he is. It shows, because, I mean, even though he's super rich, he still feels like a regular, you know, there's a regular kid yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Along with all the other kids in the neighborhood, yeah. you know, from the, the shyest to the weirdest. It's like, oh, they're just kids. Yeah, just yeah, exactly. And he's yeah. likable, too. Yeah. And, you know, with Thirsty Rich, I'm sure there's kind of a fine line between, like, is he likable, you know, because he's so rich? Yeah. Or- you know, does he come off as obnoxious? And you guys totally nailed the likability. Yeah, thank I you. I think it's like he missed yeah. out on something that's yeah. really important that, we, you know, most of us have had. We had great, you know, childhood or childhood memories, and mm-hmm. he hasn't had that yet. So it's something where, like, you can even kind of feel sorry for him. And now, you know, we've got Harvest Street, the best place to be a kid. He gets mm-hmm. to have this opportunity now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I love what you did with that character because I used to read the Richie Rich comments Uh but I was wondering is there a chance of bringing other Harvey comics characters into the uh, into the mix like is there going to be a Casper possibly like for a Halloween episode or Wendy the Good Witch or any of those characters and I think you just have to keep watching and find out (laughs) 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 Yeah. yeah (laughs) <laughs> Mum's the word. <laughs> okay, I had to ask. 
Always good. So, what are some things that you wish you knew before you became a showrunner for those out there? Because we have a lot of like students who listen that one day, this is their dream. So, what's some good advice that you have for them as they're making their way through? Hmm. I don't know if I can think about what I wish I had known. I can share some advice that I got that was the best advice that I got, and that was from Dan Pavemeyer. I asked him, what is some advice you can give me as I'm becoming a showrunner? Like, what's something that I need to know? And he said the best, best, best thing to me, and that is to let your crew surprise you. Because he said, even when he first started, you know, people would do something, design something or board something, and he'd think like, no, 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 I wouldn't do it that way. And he just kept thinking, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't do it that way. And, or, you know, I imagine in my head this way. And then he started asking himself, well, can it be this way? Is this way okay too? Is this a valid way too? Or, is it, you know, maybe sometimes he found out it, it was even better. Mm -hmm. So he started to kind of back off from that. And I think that there are a lot of showrunners that kind of give their crew a hard time that the crew maybe doesn't have the best experience because that showrunner is working so hard to only have their one way happen. And although you do need to be what I call the keeper of the vision, you do need to be the keeper of the vision. You're thinking about the big picture. You're thinking about the needs of the studio. There's so much that showrunner is thinking about. However, if you let your crew surprise you, not only do they feel they feel ownership of what they're doing. They feel good about themselves working on the show. They feel like when they watch the show, they really see their work. It just creates a happier crew. And on top of it, the byproduct of all that is you're less stressed out. You're not carrying the weight of their world on your shoulders redoing everything. And so I think as a showrunner, it enables you to have a better experience too. That is excellent. Just mm -hmm. be open to new ideas. Yeah. From your crew. I mean, there are times, of course, where it, you know, you're going to need to step in and be like, no, we need it this way because of this, this, and this. Or because of your skill set, you're going to be able to say, this could be shot in a better way because it'll be clear for the audience to understand. Or I know this other episode's coming that this isn't going to hook up. Like, there's going to be things that come up, of course. But then there is this element of let that crew member that you worked so hard to choose and has this amazing skill set bring that to the table and bring something special to the show that maybe you wouldn't have been able to or you might have been able to but this other way of doing it is special too very good well Aliki you have been so generous with your time thank you so much for coming on the show Aww. and sharing Harvey Goes Forever with us we love the show it's super fun awesome. really represents childhood so thank you again <laughs> thank you thank you for having me yeah absolutely yeah. And that concludes today's episode. Special thanks to Aliki and the DreamWorks team for enabling us to come in and interview her. We really appreciate it. And make sure to check out all of her work in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure to leave a five-star review in iTunes. All of your reviews help more and more people to find out about the show. And you can also support the show by visiting www.theanimatedjourney.com and clicking on the PayPal donation button. We sincerely appreciate everyone who's donated to the show and helped us to pay for the technical costs associated with running the podcast. And to see what else is going on in the world of animation, make sure to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash theanimatedjourney. On Tumblr, the site is theanimatedjourney.tumblr.com. And on Instagram and Twitter, the handle is at animjourney. And Jeff, where can people find you? 
People can find me on Instagram at Shootsy, S-H-O-O-T-Z-E-E, and on Twitter at JeffBot, J-E-F-B-O-T, and on my website, JeffBot.com. And where can people find you, Angela? And people can find me at my website, www.SketchySoul.com, on Tumblr, the site is SketchySoul.Tumblr.com, and on Instagram, the handle is at SketchySoul. So that's it for this week. Tune in next time for our 100th episode, Woo! our grand finale. Yeah. <laughs> it's happy and like yeah. a little bit it's sad. It's too. happy, but sad, but I'm really proud that we're going out on episode 100. Yeah, that's great. I feel like that's definitely an achievement. It's and a good number. It's a wonderful round number. It's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're already getting a lot of questions. Yeah. So, very yeah. much looking forward to that. And it's not too late. So if you guys have any additional questions you would like to send us about the animation industry, about shows, about people we've interviewed, about the podcast, whatever questions you have, send them our way. We would love to answer as many of them as we can for the episode. And the email address for that is contact at theanimatedjourney.com. So yeah definitely do that. So until next time, be encouraged and have a great day, everybody.